U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the second officer of this podcast, Christoph. Hey, hello, Captain. Good to be here. I'm very excited to see what is in store for today. Well, last time we were covering the American Civil War. We were in the lower seaboard uh, area of operations, and we had just finished the first Charleston Harbor battle in the South Carolina area of operations. That's a mouthful. So we are going to continue on that line, and we're going to go over the second battle of Fort Wagner. Oh, are you ready to get underway? Oh, yeah. I'm uh, more than ready. Then let's get underway. <laughs> let's do it. So this battle was fought July 18th, 1863. So Fort Wagner, or as it was also known, Battery Wagner, was installed to control the southern approaches to Charleston Harbor. It was commanded by a guy named Brigadier General William B. Talaferio. That's probably completely butchered, but you know what? He can't complain. That's the advantage of talking about the past. Exactly. So there was an attempt on July 11th to assault the fort. This was the first battle of Fort Wagner, but it was repulsed with heavy losses because of artillery and musket fire. And because the Navy wasn't involved, we did not cover it. Now, a guy named Brigadier General Quincy Gilmore intended to repeat the assault on the fort, but what he wanted to do first was execute a couple of feints to distract the Confederacy's attention. This was the Battle of Grimble's Landing on July 16th, and Gilmore also ordered an artillery bombardment of the fort. So this fort is on a very narrow island, so this forced the Union to be able to only assault the fort with one regiment at a time. You can only fit so many guys in a line on an island. Especially a narrow one. The approach of the fort was only about 60 yards wide. There was the ocean on the east side and a marsh from Vizens Creek on the west. So, you know, that's a bit of a funnel. Absolutely. That seems easy to defend. I can see why they were repulsed with heavy losses before. Yes. So once you are approaching the fort, you are now presented with a 250-yard wall, which is the fort itself. So you're coming up to a 250-yard wall with 60 yards of movement, of area you can move in. Yeah. I can imagine you would need some kind of distraction to get in at all. So, you mentioned a feint. Yeah, that was a, a amphibious landing. It oh, was, I see. It, it, it's barely worth mentioning just because that's all it was. was and it, a, a fake amphibious landing, landing to draw troops away from the fort. Okay, I got you. And there, we've can't we've already covered that battle just now. <laughs> All right. Now, around this fort was a shallow moat. 
which had sharpened logs on the bottom of it sticking up. And, and on the seaward side, they had planks with spikes positioned beneath the water. So they had a lot of spikes going around this uh, fort. Now, the armament of Fort Wagner on this night consisted of one 10-inch seacoast mortar, two 32-pound carronades, two 8-inch shell guns, two 32-pound howitzers, a 42-pound carronade, and a 8-inch seacoast mortar on the land-facing side. Now, the sea face of the fort was armed with a 32-pound carronade, a 10-inch columbade, and two 12-inch howitzers. The garrison consisted of Company A of the 1st South Carolina Artillery, the Charleston Battalion, the 31st North Carolina and the 51st North Carolina. So that is the... Here's a map for you of the approach and everything. And you see that? I was in the wrong window. <laughs> yes. So that's what I just described. You see that little narrow path that they have to be able to get through there. It's interesting how they, uh, down on the... Uh, if this is situated north-south correctly, on the south side, there's something that's labeled bomb-proof. I wonder how bomb-proof that is. I don't know. That is the fort. I have a quick question. As you were mentioning, who was garrisoned? And this is a bit of an aside. I hope you can entertain that. Of course. So you mentioned regiments with different numbers. And throughout different... Um, depictions of military forces you'll hear like the 101st or the 32nd or any number of different divisions um how do they get their numbering because nothing ever seems sequential it seems random but i know that's not the case so army divisions are numbered in the order they were created so the first division was actually the first division and so on and so on but there, as you notice, are gaps. Yes. So during a time of war, draft happens. You get a lot of people. So a lot of units are formed. Like World War II, they had infantry divisions running all the way up to the 106 because of World War II. But once peacetime happens... A lot, if not most, of the units formed during the war are deactivated. That makes sense. So once they're deactivated, they don't always just reactivate them. They just form new ones. Okay. Does that answer? Yeah, that makes sense. I guess, yes. Now, any army guy listening or marine guy listening, if you got a better... Better answer, please let me know, because I am not an Army or Marine Corps guy. I am a Navy guy. We name boats. <laughs> so, let's get into the battle, shall we? Indeed. So, Gilmore orders his siege guns and one firing on the fort on July 18th. 
and they are joined by naval gunfire from six monitors that pulls up to within 300 yards of the fort. Navy's involved. We cover the battle. They bombard this fort for eight hours. What? Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on which side of the attack you're sitting on, there is not much damage being caused. They lose about eight men and have about 20 wounded. Because remember that bomb-proof area? Yes. That's their shelter. And it worked. Wow, kudos to the uh, architect of the fort. Yes. So after the bombardment is done, the 54th Massachusetts, this is a infantry regiment composed of African-American soldiers and is led by Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. They lead the Union attack, infantry attack. They had two brigades with nine regiments right behind them. So they begin the assault at 1945, and they used to do this. The 54th attack to the west uh, upon, to, well, the 54th attack to the west, and the other regiments attacked on the seaward side face on the south. So, yeah. I was going to say, that's cool. the part that faces the sea, correct? Because it it looks like it spans the entire island, the width of the 60 yards, right? I'm mean, sorry, it's more, 250, it's 60 yards of movable area, but the fort goes across the entire width. So the north side of the fort yeah. is like kind of the intercoastal highway of sorts. Well, if we're looking at this map, the creek is actually on the north side of the fort. Okay. With the sea on the south side of the fort. And that's where the remainder of the forces are attacking, correct? Right. Cool. All right, I'm with you. Carry on. Carrying on. Where the hell was I? <laughs> <laughs> you said that the remainder of the force is attacking the south-facing wall, sea-facing sea wall. So as the assault starts, the bombardment stops, and they, the guys take their position. Now, the, there was a regiment that was like, you know what? We're just going to stay in this bomb-proof shelter. We're not going to, we're not going to fight because we've already been ex captured and exchanged once. And we don't want to do this again. So the 54th reaches about 150 yards away from the fort. That's when the defenders open up with their cannons and small arms, just tearing through these Yee. guys. Yeah, the uh, North Carolina division just were direct firing out of these guys. And the Charleston Battalion fires on them from their aunt into their left. So they're getting hit by two two sides. Golly. But the 54th do manage to reach the parapet. Oh. And, but that is as far as they get. Even when they get into hand-to-hand -hand combat, they are eventually forced back. The 6th Connecticut, meanwhile, continues their assault at the weakest point. 
which is where the 31st had what their position was. You know, they stayed in the bunker like, nope, we're, we're not doing it. So that <laughs> makes that their weakest position. So General Taliferro, he quickly rounds up some guys to take the position while the North Carolina and Charleston Battalion fires into the Union soldiers. Man, those, I mean, I don't mean to jump to the end, but those losses must have been pretty heavy. It doesn't seem like there's a bunch of cover. And they're firing directly into a, a close column of people, tightly grouped troops. Yeah. We'll, we'll be getting into the into the casualties. Don't you worry. Oh, okay. I have numbers for you. I was just visualizing it, and it, it, it's not looking good for the Union right now. Yeah. So the Connecticut New York uh, battalions, they do reach the slopes of the Bastion. And the, unfortunately, the remainder of Strong's brigade did not reach as far as they did. Because that's when the howitzers start firing and coming down, which is actually firing canister shot into their flank. Colonel Putnam brings up his brigade, but only about one to two hundred from the 62nd and 67th Ohio Brigade reaches the Bastion. Now, the Confederacy did attempt counterattacking twice, but they got beaten back both times because the officers uh, that were leading these, these attacks were taken down. Oh. So, at this point, the Union assault starts to crumble. One of the reasons was because of a lack of reinforcements. And as fresh, as fresh uh, Confederate troops start coming over the bastion, they just start ripping into the rest of the Union troops that were still there, killing and capturing them. Whoa. So by 2200, the battle was over. General George Crockett Strong is mortally wounded. He was hit in the thigh by a grape shot, trying to rally his men. And Colonel Haldy Mad S. Putnam, he was shot in the head he. while giving orders to retreat. Colonel John Liffman Lyman Chatfield was also mortally wounded. Colonel Robert Gould Shaw was killed very early in the battle. There are some reports that say that he was hit seven times before a fatal wound to his chest by a rifled bullet. Seven times. That's, um, and those bullets weren't tiny. No. But you also got to imagine how many people were fighting. There were 5,000 on the U.S. side and 1,800 on the Confederate side. Okay, that is significant. And then plus the six monitors you said on the Union side, correct? Yes. Okay. Now, they did go in with the proper amount of men to be able to theoretically take a defensive position. They just didn't do it. Yeah, it's quite a defensive position. Yeah. So, in all, about... 1,515 Union, Union soldiers were killed, captured, or wounded. But this is also the closest we, we can come up with. 
because, you know, accurate records, hard to find. Uh, General Haygood, the, who was the commander of Fort Wagner on the morning of July 19th, reported to General P.G.T. Beauregard. You love that. That name's incredible. He reported that he buried 800 bodies in a mass grave in front of the fort. Only about 350 men were left from the 54th after this battle. 30 were killed in action and were buried together in a single grave with their commanders. 24 did later die of their wounds. 15 were captured and 52 were reported missing after this battle and were never seen again. The men of the 54th were hailed for their valor. valor. William Carney, who was a African-American sergeant with the 54th, is considered the first black recipient of the Medal of Honor for his actions on that day when he recovered and returned the unit's U.S. flag back to Union lines. And their conduct during this battle improved the reputation of African-Americans as soldiers which led to greater Union recruitment of African Americans and strengthened the Northern states' numerical advantage. The Confederate casualties were about 174. Oh, that's minuscule in comparison. Yes. So the fort was reinforced by Brigadier General Johnson Haygood's brigade shortly after this battle. And so the garrison of Fort Wagner was then changed during the evening, and Haygood assumed command. He was then relieved by Colonel Lawrence Kitt, who commanded the fort until it was abandoned on September 7th. General Haygood did write a book. This was titled The Memoirs of Succession, in which he states that the constant bombardment from the Union guns had unearthed such large numbers of Union dead buried after the assault of January 18th, and the air was so sickening with the smell of death that one could no longer stand to be in the fort. So even though this, this battle had concluded effectively, there was still ongoing bombardment for some time afterward? Is that common? No, he was talking about before the bombardment from before the frontal assault. Okay, because when it said when it talked about uncovering the the buried bodies, I thought that meant the uh, that mass grave. Oh wait, you you know you're right. Because eight hundred dead people, that's a lot, and that would smell really bad if not buried. And so I can see why they would try to bury them for just cleanliness purposes. But then if they're getting shelled by these ironclads and it just uncovers everything, that's that's got to be sickening. I think that's what yeah, you said. Yeah, it is. It's, it's... It, it is sickening. I mean, you're gonna get you're gonna bombard positions, whether you actually go in there or not, because it keeps is gonna keep. First of all, you're hurting morale. Second, you are doing damage to the fort and to the people manning the fort. And third, they have to keep manning the fort, which means that they're not able to pull those troops to other places. Yes, strategically, really, yeah, there's a lot of good reasons to keep doing that. And I, I suppose even though that you mentioned all the guns, there didn't seem to be too many on the sea-facing side. And 
it doesn't sound like the Confederates had any ships to speak of in, in this engagement, correct? No, they didn't have any ships in this engagement. Okay, so the Union was pretty much free to keep bombarding. Yes, and they did for 60 days, Whoa. ending September 7th. Yeah, so for, yeah, for the next two months, they bombarded. And that's why they, the bodies were kept getting unearthed. Yeah. And it's not like you can go out there and rebury them under constant bombardment. Yeah. So that was the Second Battle of Fort Wagner. How are you feeling about that one? I feel that was 100% more interesting because there was a naval component versus that first battle of Fort Wagner. Sounds way less interesting. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to move on to the second battle of Charleston Harbor. Oh. This took place late summer of 1863. So around July 18th to September 7th. So after, you know, this whole Fort Wagner thing happened, Major General Quincy Adams Gilmore, he decides on hopefully a less costly approach and begin laying siege to the, that fort. So during this whole siege, you know, other than just the whole nine, uh, 60 days of bombardment, Union forces besieged them with a array of military novelties. Union gunners made use of new pieces of artillery known as the Requa gun, which is 25 rifle barrels mounted onto a carriage. That's a lot of rifle barrels. Yeah. Okay. Here, here is a picture. You want to describe that to the... Oh, I didn't send the, the map to you. That was my bad. Oh. There. Now you can see the map. I forgot to push enter. Okay. Well, I was able to see the map. I, I don't know. Okay. This gun. So if you were to take it and take the barrels and put them upright, it looks like an old church organ. Uh, like a pipe organ you'd see in a, in a big church. But the, the barrels are probably two inches, not even that much, maybe an inch, two inches each. And they're all just lined side by side, so all all these 25 rifled barrels are just side by side. And then they're carried on the giant common either cannon or artillery wheels that you would imagine. So it looks like a pipe organ on its side, giant wheels, except they shoot bullets instead of... Uh, Notes. Yes. So a shooty organ. Yeah, shooty organ. That's the, the perfect. I should have started with that. That's perfect. Yeah. So while they're using these, the sappers are digging zigzag trenches towards the fort, where a second novelty is a calcium floodlight. Bright lights were flashed on the guys defending to blind them to oh. decrease accurate return fire while the Union gunners fired behind the lights. That's cool. What a great idea. I wonder if that was, uh, I guess, an offshoot of the technology at the time when they had, uh, when they were, took photographs, right? They had that, that flash powder or whatever? Mm-hmm. Something like that, I think. I think that was calcium flash flashes. Calcium floodlight. Wow. 
Yeah, that would be irritating. Yes. Very irritating. Very bright. Now, there were some disadvantages to, for this uh, uh, siege. The ground that the Union sappers were digging through was very shallow, uh, very sandy, which is not very good to dig through, and had a muddy base, very hard. And they also began to accidentally uncover buried bodies. Oh, that's a bad day for the sappers. Now, the bomb-proof shelter wasn't 100% bomb-proof. A artillery shell did burst through the roof, and the guy in charge, Colonel Joshua B. Howell, who was the CO of the guard that evening, took a shell fragment to the head. He he did not pass away, though. He survived. That's pretty amazing. And to be fair, I'm thinking if you have a bomb-proof section of your fort... You probably don't count the roof as much. It's usually the walls, so if it came through the roof, that's a pass, I think. Well, no, because mortars and artillery are very common nowadays. Hmm. Mortars are specifically designed to go very high and come down on on top of you. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I guess uh, the days of the old sieges, this is kind of the transition point in history. Because you had cannons, but now you're starting to get more advanced siege weaponry. Yeah. It's not just ballistas and big rocks anymore. Right. Or even cannons. Like, you could have... That, I would think cannons would be mostly straight. You know what I mean? You're you're attacking the walls of something and not so much dropping it on top of them. Depends on the angle. Oh, well, I guess it's true. If you can angle that thing good enough, you can use it yeah. as a, a mortar. Okay, yeah, point taken. Yes, absolutely. Now, one of the things the Confederacy was trying to do was to keep rotating these guys in and out, try to give them a rest. And they were also doing that at the other places, uh, Fort Sumter as well. What they would do is during the night, bro, they would use rowboats to bring in fresh troops from the mainland to replace the garrison. That's interesting. Just thinking about that world, because there's no uh, satellite photography, no artif- not a lot of artificial light. Like, you could just spotlight the area, or, yeah, a rowboat and a bunch of guys in the middle of the night. That's pretty, pretty effective. <laughs> so... Even though there were marching conditions, the Union forces were able to construct powerful batteries to maintain their siege on Fort Wagner. And these were often named in honor of fallen leaders, such as the batteries Strong, Reynolds, Kearney, and Wheat. Others are named for high-ranking army officers, such as Rosencrans and Meade. So, on August 2nd, Union engineers began constructing a battery further inland because they wanted to bombard the city of Charleston directly. All right. And by August 17th, this battery was ready for its cannons. So Lieutenant Charles Selmer brings with him a detachment of the 11th Marine Infantry 
to bring in a 200-pound parrot rifle, dubbed lovingly as the Swamp Angel. The Swamp Angel. Yeah, I, I'd read that comic book. <laughs> so Gilmore sends a ultimatum to Beauregard, P-G-T Beauregard. Oh, say no more. On, He tells them to abandon Fort Wagner and Sumter, or they were going to fire on Charleston. Gilmore receives no reply, and the first shot from Swamp Angel into Charleston was fired. They use the steeple of St. Michael's Church as a bearing marker. Now, once this started happening, the Confederate batteries, they were like, oh, we cannot have this. Oh, no and way. They, and they try to silence Swamp Angel. And Beauregard is like, what are you doing? You're firing on civilians and a city. Give me an opportunity at least to get them out. So Gilmore's like, you know what? Okay, you got the day. And so he orders the ceasefire. And he also takes the opportunity to tell them that, you know, Charleston actually is a legitimate military target because of ammunition and supplying ammunition. Well, if that's the case, why didn't they bear down on the ammunition centers instead of St. Michael's Church? Hmm? Oh, they didn't... They used it as a bearing. Okay. Just because it was a tall object that they could see and point the gun at? Yep. Okay. But we also don't have satellite imagery. We don't know where the ammunition stored. Uh, that's true. So take a guess. Fire. Do we see any secondaries? No? Okay, pick another flight. Was there a second explosion? No? Okay, shoot at something else. So they start firing again. But then after 36 shots, the Swamp Angel explodes. And she was not replaced. Now, just for comparison, I remember you talking about the guns in the, the defensive bastion, Fort Wagner, and they were on the order of 30 to 40 pounds each. This was 200 pounds. This is a massive gun. I guess once you get big enough, you get a name. Swamp Angel. Yes. I mean, sure. I'm sure other guns also had, uh, you know, their own names and everything. Oh, yeah, it's true. Maybe not as terrifying. There's Swamp Angel for you. Or at least, you know. That, that, that seems like, um, just for the listener, if you were to go to the circus and they were going to fire a man out of a cannon, it would be this cannon. Mm. It, can, it can fit an entire, oh, even a, a tall guy. So if you wanted to put Shaquille O'Neal in the cannon and shoot him, you could. What did Shaq ever do to you? No, he, he in his post-basketball days, he's become more of a celebrity, and that would include a circus side act. And so it's not that he ever did anything. It's that they're going to launch him across the tent into the, uh, the safety of a net or giant cushion or something, and everybody will laugh and everybody will applaud. It's, we're not doing anything to Shaq. I don't want to be uh, unambiguous. That guy's huge. He will hurt us. 
Shaq, we love you. Don't hurt us. <laughs> I'm just saying it's a big cannon. <laughs> so this is actually the first time a civilian population has been targeted deliberately for military purposes during the Civil War. I guess that's where the, um, I don't know if it's here, the total war doctrine, where they just say, well, everything's kind of a military target because the civilians are supplying food to the soldiers or whatever the case may be. Oh, towards the end of the war, it was a free-for-all. We're not at that point just yet at this point in time. So that was Gilmore that sent that, uh, that made that decision to, to shoot the civilians of Charleston? Yes. Okay. I'm going to write his name down as not a nice man. Oh, none of these guys were nice people. Okay, good. That's <laughs> just every name you say, I will add to the list. Oh, this guy was not a nice man. So by mid-August, Gilmore had his siege guns within range of Fort Sumter. And on August 17th, he opens fire. And during the first day of bombardment, he fires nearly 1,000 shells. Wow. Uh, by the 23rd, the masonry had pretty much been reduced to rubble. And Beauregard starts taking out his guns as quickly as possible and as many of them as possible. Gilmore wires the War Department and says, quote, Fort Sumter is a shapeless and harmless mass of ruin. Oh, I will say, to even from the common soldier up, the eloquence in which they describe everything, but especially destruction, there's just such a lyrical quality to it. That was, was well said. Yeah, he said. But he says that, you know, it's a shapeless mass of ruin, mm -hmm. harmless ruin. He keeps bombarding it until December. <laughs> maybe was maybe there was an asterisk after harmless. It's like, well, mostly harmless, not completely. <laughs> That's crazy. Ooh. But so uh, on September 5th, Gilmore and Admiral Dahlgren attacks Fort Wagner mm. for 36 hours. Killing a hundred of the defenders. Okay, this is the same Fort Wagner that we just spoke about, right? And that was very yeah, well fortified? This is in the future. Right. So I'm yes. just trying to figure out... That's That seems like a big... In 36 hours, that's a lot of losses on the defense side. And that it seems like a big swing. Well, this is also two months later, after being bombarded for nearly uh, 60 days. That's right. Okay. So, yeah, th 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 there's been time to crumble. Mm -hmm. And then on August 21st, a guy named Colonel George B. Dandy leads the 100th New York. <laughs> Feel free to laugh. You can laugh. Oh, no, I'm la I'm laughing. It's just like, oh, yeah. You know, whenever a teacher teaches you something in a certain way in school and it gets stuck in your mind, and it's like, I'm never going to forget that date or I'm never going to forget that guy or that formula or whatever. Because of the way it's presented, I will now uh, always remember Dandy was involved in in this attack. Dandy leaves the 100th New York Infantry <laughs> in a rush to Fort Wagner, uh, specifically at the rifle pits. 
and they quickly establish a picket line. But then the counterattack comes off. General Haygood goes in and drives off Dandy's men. <laughs> <laughs> I, I keep doing that because you keep giving me that reaction. Yeah, it's <laughs> Dandy. I can't quite do it as well, but. <laughs> so following Dandy's attack, the Confederate engineers begin to strengthen the rifle pits. They were hoping to force the Union Army into mounting another hugely costly assault. But before they could complete this work, Gilmore, Gilmore orders a division to capture the rifle pits. So General Alfred H. Terry, he takes the 24th Massachusetts Infantry and they go in an attack. Each member of the 24th Massachusetts was actually given two additional shovels so they could immediately rebuild the rifle pit once they take it. Oh, wow. That's pretty advanced planning. Yeah. So on the evening of August 25th, General Stevenson personally leads this attack covered from the covered by the Requa guns. Oh, yeah. Okay. They do overrun the position, capturing a lot of guys. So the fort's commander orders a artillery counterattack, but the rifle pits are already a new siege line by this time. Right. They were rebuilt. Okay. Two shovels. Yeah. One shovel each hand. Right. <laughs> I was just thinking uh, pina coladas, but this is wartime, so... You got to trade yeah. those in for shovels. So conditions at the fort were starting to become intolerable. So the garrison commander, a guy named Colonel Lawrence M. Kitt, tells General Beauregard that he only has about 400 men capable of defending the fort. So Beauregard orders his guys on the evening of September 6th to the 7th to abandon their position on Morris Island. And once the Union troops figured out that there was nobody else in the fort anymore, they occupy Fort Wagner. That was the 60 days I was talking about earlier yep. being bombarded, bombarded that they, they held off. So you're saying this was only possible due to the Navy's engagement. Is that what you're saying? Sure. Yes, yes, that's... Why were the U.S. Naval History Podcast? I figured it was all because of Dandy. <laughs> could be. Could be. When you all when right. you started talking about six months of sustained shelling, I was just like, ugh, that would that's gonna sixty days. Yeah. That's two months. So with our partnership with uh HeroCars.us, we are going to honor one of our fallen angels. We are going to honor today lieutenant albert leroy david his hometown was maryville missouri he served on the uss pillsbury de133 he received the medal of honor and the navy cross with gold star his date of sacrifice was september 17 1945 in norfolk virginia he was 43 years old Lieutenant Albert David was awarded the Medal of Honor for his courage in leading a boarding party onto a German U-boat. 
This was the first capture of an enemy warship on the high seas in 130 years. The confiscated technology, maps, and plans helped Allied forces combat the German U-boat menace in World War II's Atlantic Theater. He was born in Maryville, Missouri, and enlisted in the United States Navy in Kansas City on September 30th, 1919, at the age of 17. According to Naval History and Heritage Command, he completed basic training at Naval Training Station, San Francisco, California, and received orders to serve on the battleship USS Arkansas, BB-33. Now, for two decades, he served on numerous ships across the fleet, including the USS Rochester, CA-124, the USS Preston, DD-379, the USS Delaware, BB-28, the USS Utah, BB-31, the USS Texas, BB-35, the USS Trenton, CL-11, the USS Cincinnati, CL-6, the USS Salt Lake City, CA-25, and the USS Dobbin, 83. After 20 years of service, he was placed onto Fleet Reserve, and within a month, on September 1st, 1939, Nazi invaded, the Nazis invaded Poland and started World War II. Now, at this time, the United States had no official declaration of war, but they started preparing anyway, and Lieutenant David was recalled to active duty. The U.S. Department of Defense recounts, quote, David spent the next few years working stateside and received three promotions. By May of 1943, he was a lieutenant junior grade with orders to help outfit and serve on the newly commissioned USS Pillsbury, DE-133, a destroyer that escorted Atlantic Ocean convoys into Casablanca, Morocco, and Gibraltar. The ship also served as part of a hunter-killer task force formed around the carrier USS Guadalcanal, CVE-60. So as Lieutenant J.G., he served as Pillsbury's assistant engineering and electrical officer when the task force, using sonar technology, located a German submarine about 150 miles off the coast of Cape Blanco. It was, it's a peninsula in the North Atlantic on the border of Marionuta and Western Shahara in Western Africa. One of the task force ships launched depth charges to disable the sub and it damaged the rudders and started flooding and was forced to surface. This was later identified as the German U-boat U-505. The German commander ordered the crew to set demolition charges and scuttle the ship, as they are ordered to do, and then to abandon the ship. The first action of Lieutenant David and a team of nine from Pillsbury is recounted in David's Medal of Honor citation, which reads, The President of the United States of America, in the name of Congress, takes pride in presenting the Medal of Honor posthumously to Lieutenant then Lieutenant Junior Grade, Albert Leroy David, United States Navy, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty while attached to the USS Pillsbury DE-133 during the capture of an enemy German submarine off French West Africa. 4 June 1944, taking a vigorous part in skillfully coordinating attack on the German U-boat U-505 
which climaxed a prolonged search by the task group. Lieutenant David boldly led a party from the Pillsbury in boarding the hostile submarine as it circled erratically at five or six knots on the surface. Fully aware that the U-boat might momentarily sink or be blown by exploding demolition and scuttling charges, he braved the, addition, the additional danger of enemy gunfire to plunge through the conning tower hatch and, with his small party, exerted every effort to keep the ship afloat and to assist the succeeding and more fully equipped salvage parties in taking the U-5s, in making the U-505 seaworthy for the long tow across the Atlantic to a U.S. port. By his valiant service during the first successful boarding catch of an enemy man-of-war on the high seas by the U.S. Navy since 1815, Lieutenant David contributed materially to the effectiveness of our Battle of the Atlantic and upheld the highest traditions of the U.S. Naval How do you... Boarding a submarine sounds insane, number one, but uh, getting in there fast enough to keep them from blowing it and then salvaging it so you could tow... I mean, that's, that's a lot of uh, focused work, and I'm just viewing the movie in my mind. It, it's... That's why he got a Medal of Honor. Honor. All right. uh, the, the high value to the Allies in capturing the American U-boat cannot be overstated. U-505 had sunk eight Allied ships before its capture. The sub was equipped with the latest German technology in radar, torpedoes, radio code, and other advanced systems. Other valuable finds included charts, code books, classified materials, Enigma decoding machines, and even notebooks containing decrypted messages. After towing the crippled submarine to the United States, it provided a it provided a treasure trove of intelligence that helped Afri- that helped Allied forces combat the German U-boat threat throughout the Atlantic Theater. U-505 was the first enemy vessel captured by the U.S. Navy since the War of 1812, 130 years earlier. The U.S. Department of Defense says the confiscated materials also allowed the Allies to continue decoding German submarine radio messages in real time, which led to greater success in the European theater. While Lieutenant David's action earned him the Congressional Medal of Honor, he would not live to receive the award. He died of a heart attack on September 17, 1945, in Norfolk, Virginia, less than a month before the ceremony would have honored him with the nation's highest military award for valor. His widow, Lida May David, was presented his medal by President Harry S. Truman on October 5th, 1945, in a ceremony at the White House. Lieutenant Albert Leroy David was laid to rest in Fort Rosencrantz National Cemetery in San Diego, California, on December 19th, 1964, and the U.S. Army launched the destroyer USS Albert David FF-1050, named in his honor. Now, the... U-boat, U-505. We actually have an episode on this U-boat. You can go check that out for more information on this U-boat. And you can actually go see this U-boat right now, if you want, at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry. I have seen it. It is awesome. It is a great historical uh, footnote, I guess. Something like that. Yeah. So, Lieutenant Albert Leroy David, thank you. Thank you. XO, would you like to take us out? Uh, sure thing. So, thanks for listening. Uh, I always learn a little something each episode, and I hope you do too. Uh, if you want to contact this podcast, please feel free to do so. 
The email address is usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, the handle is at usnhistorypod. We also have a Discord channel. Please feel free to join. You can get to that in the show notes. And we're also on YouTube. So if you would like to play us without watching us but still listening to us on a different way, you can do that. So go to the show notes. All the stuff's there. And I think that's everything, Captain. Uh, is there anything else we should be sharing? I don't believe so. Excellent. Yeah. We will wish you, as always, fair winds and following seas. Goodbye. Bye-bye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 2-1-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-